Hi, this is Ben Klenner, and welcome to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to bring to you another interview with Chris Ferreira. Chris has recently released a book called A Place in the Country, which is, and I quote, an eyes wide open approach to creating your own beautiful, productive and sustainable rural landscape. And I would actually add to that, that what this book talks about is regenerative practices, not just sustainability. Uh, Chris is a friend and a mentor to me, and I'm happy to promote this book and do this uh, book review with him, which he has been working on for the last 12 years. And at the end of the episode, you'll find out how you can win a copy of this book. So in this episode, we discuss the story of how Chris came to write the book and delve into the subjects covered in the book. We talk about choosing a rural property with your eyes wide open, safeguarding your property from disaster. We talk about deciding what animals to have on your property, priming the soil, pasture and crops, shelter belts, old growth trees, bushland, revegetation, uh, we talk about water, which is uh, really important on any landscape, creating a country garden and profitable trees. So there's lots that we cover, but uh, Chris really does a, a good job of tying it all, all together and pre- presenting what's in the book. Uh, in keeping with the theme of creating life around us, I think that this is a great episode for creating life around us. While not directly related to microbes, I think it fits in well to living a probiotic life. So if you like what you hear in this one, at the end of the episode, I'll share about how you can enter to win a copy of the book. And it's not limited to Australia. This is worldwide. We'll ship the book to you worldwide. So if you do enjoy the podcast and you're getting some value out of it, consider giving us a rating and review on your preferred podcast app. And if you really want to support the podcast, consider supporting us on Patreon. So thanks for listening to The Probiotic Life. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Chris Ferreira. Welcome again to The Probiotic Life and welcome back, Chris Ferreira. Yeah, thank you. I feel very honoured to be, this is my second time on the show. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And um, we, we brought, brought you back on the show um, to talk a little bit about this, this beautiful book that you have uh, written and obviously a lot of hard work's gone into it and we'll, we're going to get into it. Um, but I want to hear a little mm-hmm. bit about the story of, of how you came to uh, to write this book and, and all of where did this all come from? Indeed. So, Chris, mm. this, this your book, uh, A Place in the Country, it's been, sounds like it's been um, a long time in the making and a lot of years' experience <laughs> going in. Do you want to share, us, share with us a bit about uh, your experience and where did you get the idea to, to write a book like mm. this? Thanks, Ben. Um, Yeah, well, growing up on a farm, I was very lucky to, from the age of seven, Dad decided to buy a farm. And I always say to people that uh, he must have bought that in the middle of spring 
And even though I was seven years old at the time, I can guarantee he bought it in spring because that's the only time the country where I grew up would ever look good. (laughs) So you're never going to buy a property in the middle of our summer because it's very dry, poor, sandy soil. So he would have bought it in spring and he wanted to have a piece of land for horses. He Mm. wanted to have a riding school. He wouldn't have known one end of a plough or even anything about farming, but he had to have a farm because the animals he wanted were horses and Mm. they need room. Okay. So I guess where I'm going with that is that from the age of seven, this once beautiful piece of land that had forests and wetlands and was just the most wonderful playground for a boy, the horses destroyed it. And Mm. from an early age, I could see that land being decimated by the impacts of horses, ring barking the trees, burying the paddocks. So I just learned from an early age that you have to look after the land or it can't look after us. And that gave me my love of trees and the love of the land. So it really started from there. And then in terms of the book, I started writing that uh, in 2007. So it's taken about 12 12 years Mm. to get to this point. And the pro, I guess the big thing is that around the world, as you know, we're the most disconnected community in history. Mm-hmm. Less than 1% of us in OECD countries have anything to do with commercial food growing. So farming is a totally abstract concept. So whilst on one level we have this fascination with cooking and cooking shows and it's almost, you know, just food obsession, what we don't seem to have in the mix is much information about, well, what's happening to the land that's producing all of this food? Mm -hmm. So this book is really trying to um, get out there some powerful information about how we have to look after the land. So I'm looking at this book, Chris, and um, it's a really interesting format. You know, it's, it's, it's not really a textbook, although it does have information like a textbook, but um, it's visually appealing. It's got some great contrasts. One of the, one of the um, I mean, contrast, there's a LMU, the land management unit of like what is a good way to manage the land and a not good way to manage the land. But they, you, you have it in like nice, neat little charts you t- tell us a little bit about how you um, designed the book and the way the yeah. book has been uh, meant to read. Well, I, I when I spoke to Fremantle Press and I'd got a, originally I thought I would have to self-publish. And there's an old marketing adage, you sell the sizzle, not the sausage. So a, bo- a boring text, just a manuscript, you know, that's nowhere near as appealing as being able to lay it out. And I wanted, to be a hi- I wanted it to be a hybrid of a coffee table book and a guidebook Mm. because, um, as we've said before, there are so many beautiful evocative images of landscapes. If you can pepper them through a book, you know, visually we're led by the eye first. So if that entices you, then you're more likely to read the words a little later. And I wanted it to not be dry and boring, so um, I commissioned an architect, not an architect, a cartoonist to do some cartoons, and we sourced beautiful images to try and pepper through the book. So that was a big part of it. And again, trying to make it easy to read and in a chatty style. But um, I was inspired by an amazing book by an American author called What Colour Is My Parachute? And um, and I remember reading this book and it's, it's really, uh, that's a book about career and following your life passions. Beautiful book, you know, wonderful aspirational goal. But I remember reading this book going, my God, this guy's got cartoons in there and sketches and it's quirky. It's really written from a very chatty point of view. And I said, I love the way he's written this book. And I wanted the book to be written that way because it shouldn't be dry. It shouldn't be boring. It should be filled with humour because having a piece of land is quirky and you're going to see and do and have experiences that you just cannot predict. And therefore, I wanted the book to, to really come across in that very easygoing style because if it's if it's not, you've got less and less chance that people are going to grab it and run with the information. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wanted it to sit up there with the cookbooks and I said right at the beginning, we have way too much emphasis on the end product. Cookbooks and cooking shows, we need to put out there books that are about, okay, it's fine, we, we need to eat and let's eat as well as we can and make it look beautiful. What about the land that creates mm. that in the first place? Great. That's a great idea. And, um, yeah, again, 
we're going to be giving uh, one of these away, mm. uh, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> um, I'm excited to to have it and and just to be able to. So it's something that you can use as a coffee table mm. book, where you just leave it on the coffee table and read a bit at a time, because there is lots of great information in here. And lots of beautiful images. It's pretty easy, as I said, to get great photos. And we were lucky enough to have some amazing photos from friends. And one of the photos on the cover is a is an early morning shot in a place called Gijiganup. And, you know, it's so inspiring. Mm. And that's been used twice in the book because, and I saw Louise who, who took the photo, I said, oh, that is such a beautiful photo. She had it in her office. And I said, oh, I would love to use that in the book. She said, yeah, I'd be honoured to have mm. it in the book. So mm. there's lots of different photos, again, to try and captivate people's imagination because, again, hobby farms or small farms mean many different things to many different people. So you want as many different images where hopefully that appeals and they go, oh, yes, that's an image mm. of what I want on my place. Great. Fantastic. Yeah, um, I'm just flipping through it now, Chris, mm. and and – I can't I can't find it right at the moment, but there there's a uh, a plan of your fam- mm. family farm in there, isn't there? That's right. Um, and That's right. actually, I'll just explain a little bit about the book. That you know, it's actually um, the way it's set up is like almost like an instruction manual mm. of how to uh, look after a piece of uh, land. And and what you refer to as hobby farming, even though some mm. people don't like that. That's right. Yeah. That term. Um, so you've got this. You've got these beautiful uh, plans in there. Lots of illustrations and sort of a manual style of like this is what is best practices and what aren't uh, good, manageable uh, or sustainable practices. Um, so yeah, do you do you want to do you want to share with us a little bit about the the, the process? Mm. Oh, there, yeah, here we go, right here. Yeah. So uh, I mean, the, the key with the book. And perhaps carrying on with that story a little bit, growing up on the farm. So um, the farm became my classroom. And I I say that in the blurb at the back of the book that Mm. the farm was the greatest teacher I ever had because um, the the obsession with trees continued. I went and studied forestry and then I travelled around the world. And everywhere I went where the community was on its knees, where the civilization was poor, people were destitute, the landscape was polluted and degraded. The the, the malaise of the civilization mirrored the destruction of the land. So it just mm. kept reinforcing for me that we are nothing without healthy landscapes. Mm. So um, I travelled, came back, and the land was in the degraded state, thanks to thirty horses. And so I just put my heart and soul into revegetating and healing that landscape. And and that gave me the confidence doing that because it worked. You know, we put in about 30,000 trees and shrubs and pasture and it basically transformed that piece of land. It became more productive, it became mm. more environmentally sustainable, it became a much nicer place to spend time mm-hmm. and it lifted the value of the property. Um, and then about that time I started teaching this stuff professionally through a program that we created called Heavenly Hectares. Mm. So the book really is a, a synthesis of knowledge that came from my own experiences, revegetating, but learning from people. And what that showed me is that most people don't put a lot of thought into choosing their property. They put as much thought into choosing their property as they do their life partner, mm-hmm. which is often, you know, saw them across a room, thought, oh, you look all right. And the amount of people I know have said, I had two or three kids with that person. I don't know what I was thinking. I can't stand. You know. <laughs> so we're not particularly good at picking our life partners and therefore we're probably not very good at picking our piece of land. So the first chapter of the book is, okay, if you want a piece of land, great, but, you know, go in with your eyes wide open, recognise that these are the issues that you're going to face mm. so that if you accept that that is part of the what comes as part of the package, the tyranny of distance, the fact that uh, you might be in a more dangerous place, the impacts of fire, you're further away from hospitals, you're away from the support networks, Mm. all that kind of thing. If you accept that and go, yep, even knowing all of that, I want a piece of land, then you're far more likely to go in with your eyes wide open and choose the right place. And then the second chapter is, all right, you want a piece of land, let's try and match your needs with what is out there. And I've seen people who have come to workshops of ours and they have an aerial photo of the farm and it's a rocky outcrop 
with bush on it mm. and they want to have horses or sheep. And you go, well, what were you thinking? That's clearly not going to work. You're not going to get permission to clear the trees. Even if you could, you got rocky, stony soil. The reason why it was left as a rocky outcrop because a farmer who had it in a previous incarnation as a farm went, well, I can't do any grazing on that or cropping. Mm. So unless you make those fundamental connections, which is as a family unit, what do we want to have on our piece of land? Mm. Just do a quick visioning session. Then you can start to choose. So the book kind of breaks up, and I've seen about 18,000 small to medium farmers. So you get a bit of an idea on what people are after. And they're Mm. after one of four types of property, basically. There's the, I want to leave suburbia behind and I just want to leave in a bush retreat where if if I never see another human again, that's great. So there's those sorts of people. There are the sustainability people who want to have the chalks and the, the pasture for the horse and for the sheep. They want to have a bit of everything. There are the productive, those that, you know, want to turn their hand to growing the best vineyard or having truffles or, you know, they want to really create something commercial. And then there's a blend of all of those put together. Mm, but until okay. you know what you're after you can't choose the right place. Mm. And then once you've ideally matched that all up, then the planning process begins and all those other chapters in the book. Yeah, right, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. I think let's set the scene a bit yes. about, um, you know, here what it is like in Western Australia. And mm. as I mentioned to you before, Chris, uh, well, you do have a permaculture background, mm. don't you? Yes. So, so a lot of these princip- principles would be in line with those permaculture principles uh, which also means that this uh, information, this knowledge that you've uh, collected and put into a book, book is actually applicable worldwide as Absolutely. long as you understand those principles. Absolutely. And um, the book um, was written, firstly, it was going to be written for WA. And then when beautiful Fremantle Press agreed to publish and, and take it on, they said two things at the meeting. Um, yes, we'll take it on, but it's this thick. So I'm holding up that it was a manuscript of about 460 pages. So it was about two inches in thickness. And they said, you need to get it down to about 250 pages. And you need to write it for Australia and New Zealand. And um, that was actually more, that was easier than I thought it was going to be. And as you said, it's because the principles really don't change. Mm. Species will change. And there's a few idiosyncrasies with landscapes, of course, But the fundamental principles, if you've got to look after the soil, you have to understand the climate, you have to understand what's going on around you. It doesn't matter where you are. You can be in Montana, you can be in Oagadudu, you can be in the steps of Kathmandu, you know, above Kathmandu. It doesn't matter. Those principles are always going to be there. Mm. And you only need to look at where sustainable agriculture has thrived, where people have been farming the same areas for hundreds of years and it's in a sustainable, steady state. Mm. And they will all, will all have in common that whoever has that land respects, values and nurtures the soil. Mm. They will integrate perennials. And it will generally be a diversity of species on those landscapes. It doesn't matter where you are. Those key principles keep falling out and therefore showing up as common in all sustainable farming. So not surprisingly, the book has as its fundamental pillars, soil is everything. If you Mm -hmm. don't look after the soil, you've got nothing. And how can we integrate perennials into your landscape, whether it's deep-rooted grasses, trees and shrubs, for a whole range of reasons. And I guess the other thing that it doesn't matter where you are, you will always need to fall back on design. And I use the analogy, not the analogy, my mantra is you put the right plants in the right place for the right reasons. And that's a permaculture truism. And the book really is, I think, a hybrid of permaculture and land care. Mm. I don't really see that much difference between the two. Land care might say, well, if we need to plant 10,000 trees on the farm, and we don't have an army of people to come and hand weed and we can't sheet mulch and it's voracious and vigorous weeds, we might have to use chemicals. Whereas permaculture would say probably we'll never use chemicals and they will then have a big issue in terms of how much revegetation that they can do. That's that's another topic, but people have often asked me, what's the difference? And I say, I don't actually think there's that much difference. Mm. They still have at their heart design looking after the soil and working with rather than against nature. Mm-hmm. You know, Chris, it, it reminds me of uh, driving 
my wife and I flew into LA once and drove from LA up to um, Seattle. And the landscape is very similar, especially in WA, to Southern California. Right. Yeah. Um, but then you get up into NorCal and then Oregon. You know, we had a a guy, Nick Mahmood from Green Source Gardens, and they have a regenerative um, farm in Oregon. And they're uh, on the on the slopes of the Cascadia Mountains, I think it is. Um, 80% of their land is actually forest that they manage. Yeah. They don't actually use that for anything else because they have such a value for uh, being at the top of a watershed. So there's there's all these principles in there that I'm mm. I'm relating to what I saw, you know, driving through California yeah, yeah. and worldwide. So I'm I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your travels. Mm. You've you've travelled around a bit and mm. you've seen some different places where mm. there's been degraded land. Can you share it with us a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, uh, look, it was the the great eye opener. So I was lucky enough. I travelled a little in Thailand, then a lot in India, Nepal, Bangladesh, and right up into basically Ladakh, which is um, kind of off limits to people now, but getting right up into that northeastern Himalaya and then through Africa. Mm. So that was Egypt, Kenya, Uganda, Zaire, Tanzania. And then at the other end of the spectrum, going and working, doing conservation work in Somerset in England. So my early travels to the third world just kept showing me that wherever there was degradation, the collapse of the civilization was really... At, you know, the, the two went hand in hand. Mm. But conversely, going to Somerset and seeing farmscapes that had been... Now, those, those landscapes in England have been... Every square, square centimetre of that land has been turned and worked by humans for hundreds of years. Mm. And yet it was a picture... Po- I mean, we've all seen images of English landscapes and they're just mesmerisingly beautiful. So that told me that, well, actually, we don't always destroy wherever we go. It can be a good news story. Mm. It's just a question of adapting to where you are. And obviously it gets harder when you get into the semi-arid kind of environments like ours. So I often say if you can farm and garden well in WA without relying on massive amounts of water and fertiliser, you could garden and farm anywhere on the planet because we have the unholy trinity of the worst soils and the oldest soils in the world. We have a semi-arid climate, the fastest drying climate on the planet, mm. and we have the third windiest city in the world. So unlike wow. Windy Welly, Wellington, New Zealand, or Chicago in America, they're cold, wet winds. Ours is extraordinarily hot, fans mm. fires, sucks the moisture out of plants, soil and as I say, unravels the efficiency of irrigation. So where I'm going with all of that is that this is an incredibly tough landscape to make things work. But despite all of that, when it's done well, we are world-class as as landscape managers. And so I think a lot of that comes because of just the sheer trials of trying to make things work in this part of the world. Mm -hmm. It's very, very tough. Mm. So the book really is shaped by that. And so those principles that are so critical here will still be the cornerstones of farming anywhere you want to go. Mm, okay, yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's it's uh, you know a beautifully laid out book, and uh, just I just sort of got lost in hmm. the pages of uh, hmm. you know trying to do an overview, but then you know oh look at look at this the detail and and the amount of understanding. So where did you? draw your from you know your knowledge how did how did you like how did you sort that out yeah well i guess i'm going to get a bit spiritual here but you know it's really important to um acknowledge that you know i think you channel information Mm. i I think you know as eckhart tolle says when he talks about writing the power of now he said the book just wanted to be read and i listened to him a lot and i go yeah i just felt an an urge and a calling to write that book Mm. and having seen so many people as i said eighteen thousand small to medium farmers the book kind of i knew the structure i knew that so many of them as i said just didn't choose properly in the first place really had some wonderful aspirational ideas but they hadn't really consolidated that into a into a format that was going to help them get the best out of that land so in terms of the way the book rolled out, I knew there would always be that how to choose the properly for choose carefully in the first place. 
then planning. So how you design that property, taking into account what is the vision, what is the strengths and the weaknesses of the property, all that boring SWOT analysis stuff, which is mm. actually critically important. So you know exactly what you're dealing with, the lumpy bits in the gravy, you know, what what's not good about the property, what's great about it, what are the threats, what are the opportunities? And when you throw all of that into the mix, you actually then have a powerful opportunity to create a great plan. So once you've got the plan, all right, where do you go from here? And then the next step was always the threats. In other words, fire, cyclones, droughts, floods, all of that. You need mm. to make people aware of the threats of living where we are in those rural environments and help plan for that. For mm. us in Australia and obviously lots of people in the US, fire is a massive issue. And for us, we need to accept that it's not a question of if but when mm. a fire will threaten your property. And you mm. can either just ignore it and hope it'll never happen and people die mm. or their properties get totally consumed or you design it so that you can have the greatest opportunity to weather that threat. Um, and then from there it's pasture because a lot of people want to have stock mm. and that's the greatest chance of destroying your landscape is you just get stock because that's what you do. And that's the greatest way to destroy a piece of land is not think about the animals, not think about their impact, choose the wrong plants. I generally say to people, unless your goats can levitate, I would never recommend getting goats for a property. <laughs> Sheep are pretty f close behind. Um, so people are unleashing these incredibly destructive animals on their landscape. It's not their fault. It's just that they're graziers and they're going to go wherever they can. Mm. And so if people aren't careful, that's the number one way you can degrade your landscape. So I really wanted to set out early in the book to give a critique of animals as well. So mm. you think about it. So instead of just getting the goats because they're cheap, why not go for something like alpacas, which are much softer on the landscape. They work well in our landscapes, but they're not going to have that environmental impact. So you Again, just think a little bit more before you just go and get. Mm. And then how many can you have on that landscape? You know, it's the humans around the planet are not really grabbing this yet, but they're going to have to learn about carrying capacity. In other words, Australia's got debates at the moment about how big Australia should be. Is it 23 million? Is it 40 million? How many can we sustain? And sustainability experts will say we're beyond our carrying capacity. This country wow, can probably okay. only probably have 18 million people and really? we've already well above that so not surprisingly unless we profoundly change the way we manage our systems and the way we impact just like overstocking a paddock we will flog it mm. and that's what we're seeing around the world um you know so the elephant in the room for the population of the planet is our human uh, the, the population growth you know it's it's really quite simple if you have X number of, if the number of people is going up and up and up and they all want more and more and more mm. and you've got finite and or dwindling resources, well, you know, mm. it doesn't take long before you know there's going to be a crunch time. So getting back to the book, that's really important to let people know, you know, every piece of land is different and once you know that landscape, then you can decide how many animals you can have. You can do lots to improve the productivity, increase its carrying capacity. And that's the next chapter is, all right, if you want to have animals, how do you put pasture in? How do you learn about crop rotation or rotational grazing or cell grazing and all the work of Alan Savory and all these amazing people? Mm -hmm. It all weaves into that mix and then trees. So how many different ways can we get trees on the landscape? And I use the term stitching the landscape back, so green frameworks. Again, if you look at any amazing sustainable farms around the planet, they will have either the retention and or the integration of trees and shrubs and generally putting windbreaks or shelter belts across the path of those marauding winds is an age-old practice that humans have used to moderate the worst effects of mm. the climate in which mm. they're living. How do we protect our remnant vegetation? Tree crops, very, very important. So everything from carobs to cork oaks to fruit trees, there are so many ways we can have perennial agriculture. Mm, and okay. then water is a big issue mm. as well. How do we manage the water and keep it on our landscapes effectively? Mm, mm -hmm. And that's that's real um, permaculture principles too, isn't it? Holding the water at the highest point in your um, in your landscape. Indeed, and and getting it into the soil. And you know, we talk about 
the 11th and the 12th commandment. And the ten, first 10, we've probably pretty much ignored most of us. But the 11th commandment, which is one for the planet, is thou shalt use the water and the nutrients where they fall. Mm. So in other words, where it falls from the sky, or if you're lucky enough, it comes from irrigation, you have a responsibility to make that water go into the soil mm. or held, as you said, in banks or something and be turned into plants and or you know, marin or yabbies or, you know, whatever you're doing. But by and large, we want that water like money in a bank. You can't do much without the financial capital mm, mm-hmm. to make an economic enterprise work. And I would say that you can't do any agriculture without moisture in the soil. So we really need to be looking at that as exactly the same way we would our bank balance. Mm, okay. So yep. using that water, getting it into the soil or, as you said, stored carefully on a landscape is critical. Mm. And then the 12th commandment is thou shalt never leave the soil bare because nature hates bare soil. Yeah. It's just a, one dust storm, one downpour, and you can lose hundreds of years of soil. As And, you know, David Bellamy says, you know, humans have marched across the face of this earth and left only deserts in their footprints. Mm. So when I talked about some of the areas I've been to, going to Egypt, and it's a desert. And they didn't choose to live in a desert. That was Samaria, Mesopotamia. It was the cradle of civilization. It was some of the most beautiful landscapes on the planet. But it's yeah, been turned into yeah. a desert because humans just, again, fail to recognize that if you don't look after the land, it can't look after you and the civilization collapses. Yeah, totally. Interestingly enough, uh, I love watching documentaries. There's one talking about some of the Greek settlements in North Africa and they have records of the the uh, grain harvests mm-hmm. and you think about the records and then try and compare it to what's there there's nothing yeah. there yeah. but i mean you know this was a couple thousand years yeah. ago in that short by geological standards yes. time we've changed the whole landscape so much and that's it you know it's so true and you know when you look at mass unemployment around the world and you know all that unrest what a wonderful thing it would be to take that energy of young, bored men and women who don't have gainful employment and they're therefore prey to the rantings of extremists. Mm. Imagine having, you know, well-funded programs where you're getting them out there doing massive rehabilitation work. And I remember Indira Nadu, who's a TV presenter over in Australia who worked for SBS, so that's the Special Broadcasting Service, and she was a newsreader and she said, you know, I, the, when I started to scratch the surface from, you know, she'd be given the list of things she was going to read out and it would be one catastrophe after another. And, you know, Syria and, and the fractious, horrific war there, so mm. much of that is down to climate change. Mm. So they had failed crops, successive brutal failed crops. So all these farmers had to leave the land because it could no longer support them. So you suddenly get this massive amount of people moving into the city, no jobs, no prospects, no future, Mm. angst, anger and discontent, which can then be a hot hotbed for the horrific stuff we see unfolding now. Mm. It it is that profound and that important that we recognise that the ails that afflict humanity always, always have their root at something to do with the way we have mismanaged the landscape and probably unfortunate climate change. There is obviously natural climate change as well. Mm. So, but generally speaking, as you said, if we've cleared all of that landscape, we've accelerated the the drying up of the the rain Mm. because you're not Mm. getting the catalyzing effect of the moisture from the forests, seeding the clouds, which then dumps the rain. So as you remove the vegetation you then accelerate it turning into a desert and therefore they're they're the problems that we Mm. face. I'd like to point out too, I think there's uh, a deeper level of, you know, basically people being exiled to cities where they start to lose touch with nature, start to lose touch with the cycles, you know, the the weather, um, the the rain, all that sort of stuff, um, the cycles of the moon and the sun. You, when you when you lose that knowledge, I think we actually have it sort of ingrained within us that we can relearn it. Mm. But when you start to lose that, I think then caring for the land, yes. you will lose that as well. 
And I, getting back to the book, one of the reasons why I wrote that book and one of the things I said at the beginning, if less than 1% of our population has anything to do with commercial growing of food and as, uh, as an international phenomenon, we are flocking from our urban areas to our cities. Mm. You know, we are becoming increasingly urbanised. Then if you have a group of people who are bucking this trend who want to go and buy a piece of land, I think... We want to have them fall in love with that land. In other words, help them choose carefully, mm. choose the right piece of land, help them design it. So the thing that I learned as well through teaching so many people is statistically one in third will sell within three years. Yeah. Because okay. they just go, my God, this is bloody hard work and I thought it was meant to be my respite and I have to deal with weeds and broken fences and fire and the animals getting sick or suddenly it's not anything that they feel in control of, mm. they're just having to put out one problem after another and they go, man, if I wanted that, I just would have stayed at home. But if you can help them be in charge and understand what all of those challenges are, then they can be proactive rather than reactive. Then we have a greater chance that they will fall in love with the land, that they will become ultimately stewards of the land. And if mm. the world needs anything at the moment, it is mm -hmm. stewards, people mm -hmm. that are custodians that understand what a wonderful, wonderful experience it is to have a piece of land and to heal it. It's mm. one of the greatest, yeah. greatest gifts. You and I talked before we went on air. You've been doing some planting in the common area just opposite your house and it's just addictive. And what a mm. wonderful thing to be addicted to, healing the land. It's mm. besides the air that we breathe and the water that we drink, the land is the most precious asset that humanity has. And so the book is really trying to say, you know, by all means, we want you to have a piece of land, but we want you to do it well so you fall in love with it. You don't become a victim to, I can't do this, I'm going to leave. Mm -hmm. And sadly, as I said, a third will leave. And I would say that's pretty much around the world if, if, they're, if they're not given the right advice to start with. Okay, yeah. And, and uh, I say one of the reasons why I really wanted to, uh, well, there's many reasons why I wanted to support this book and support what you're doing. Uh, first of all, because you've been a great mentor to me, Chris. Thank you. Um, but I think this really ties into living a probiotic life, uh, not so much with the microbes, although it does depend on the microbes in the soil, but how do we, how, what is the practical outworking of creating life around us? Mm -hmm. And this is really sort of like an instruction manual of how to create life around us. So you mentioned you can go all the way from, in this book, from, choosing a property to um, uh, managing it well, uh, reducing the risks, all that sort of stuff. So, But you, you've talked about people who have bought a property and you've done consults with that, mm. with, with those people. Yes. So wh what are some of the, the stories of how you can turn a piece of land around? What mm. I'd like to hear some of your own personal mm. stories with that. Well, you know, there's, um, there's just so many people that uh, from all different walks of life who have been able to turn the life the land around and some of the most visceral I guess are people with horses and being able to help them get good pasture established mm. and it's it's transformational for these people and they're so appreciative of being able to turn that dust bowl into something where you can have a good foundation of, mm. of productivity but I've seen properties where people have been to a workshop and then they contact you and they go oh come and see where my landscape was. I remember a property in Margaret River and they'd bought a blank canvas, five acres, completely clear. Mm. And we went and saw them about 15 years later and they built a house and they turned it into a wildlife cornucopia and they had land for wildlife status on this property and it was just beautiful and, and they were so in love. It was like them showing you the exploits and the achievements of their children, you mm. know, and they showed us the banks of plants and so many people I've had that privilege and it's such a wonderful thing when you inspire people in that way. And, and you know, you, you hopefully that addiction to healing the land rubs off that enthusiasm. Mm. And there, well, yeah, as I said, the, the rural landscape is addictive in, in its own sense. You know, you wake up on a beautiful still morning and it's misty or, you know, the rain has come and finished and there's a shower, the shower finishes and the sun streaks through. It, it is extraordinarily beautiful mm. you know landscape painters have been capturing that for hundreds of years so 
if if you can just hook that to some of the opportunities where you start to grow your plants and you see them flower for the first time and all of that, that's when people really get something out of out of that experience. So I guess I've been very lucky to see and help people heal their land. I'm working on a property at the may at the moment. And this guy's at the other end of the spectrum. He's very wealthy, awesome bloke. It's so wonderful to see a wealthy person who passionately wants to get trees in the ground. And Mm. they're falling over themselves to try and get the trees in the ground, which is wonderful. And this is a piece of land that has been flogged for so long. Beautiful, rich, loamy soil in a place called Donnybrook, which is Mm. some of our best growing land. But the land was growing spuds. So the soil is riddled with dildren and DDT. And it's being flogged with sheep and cows and it's compacted. And you just know that at last it's going to be given a respite and mm. a chance to heal. And we're literally going down now and um, preparing for putting grade banks on the sides of the hill and putting the trees in, doing the deep ripping for the tree planting. And it, it's just fa- fabulous to be mm. able to do that. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of erosion on the new earth banks. So we're going to be putting some um, batters on there and some um, matting to help hold that soil in place and let the plants grow. You never get tired of, of doing that. It's mm. just a beautiful mm. thing when it starts to happen. Mm. Yeah, Chris, um, I, I love the picture that you paint, you know, especially of connecting with um, seeing that sunrise or, or mm. whatever. You know, those are the experiences for me that um, when I think of them, like what I'm thinking of them now, just really reinvigorate me to to want to you know get out there and do something and i would say you know it's not just good for our our physical health it's our mental health as well and our spiritual health Absolutely. for me i know not everyone is like this but when i just go out into nature take a couple of days and i start to unwind yes it's like my spirit being just comes out and starts Absolutely. you know you just really are connected on a whole different level uh, look i think it might be buried quite deep, but we're all hardwired to come. Mm. We come from nature. We will go back to nature. Mm. It is it is part of it and sociologists call it nature deficit disorder mm. when people have that disconnection. Mm. And you made that point, which is as you get urbanised, you can lose that. But um, mm. it doesn't take much to recapture that. And I love mm. taking kids out onto farms and tree planting and you get them on the back of the ute or the tractor. Every kid on oh, the planet yeah. <laughs> wants to be on the back of a tractor or a ute and you get them out planting trees. And if you can get them to come back the next year and see the land healing with their trees mm. growing, mm-hmm. it's just one of the most powerful ways to embed that, as I said, that lifelong love of, of growing things. And mm. I often say in, in my talks that um, one of the greatest gifts we can give our kids is the love of nature and gardening because life will always throw them curveballs and when you see how many kids of this next millennials are um, racked with depression and guilt and anxiety and taking drugs and trying to sort of shore up their life using artificial, artificial stimulants or whatever it is, if you can give them that early understanding that a walk on the beach, planting going through a forest or being on a farm, a beautiful mm. farm, mm. is one of the greatest ways for them to just re recenter themselves and recognise, mm. you know, that actually there's something much bigger than this, that it doesn't matter about a, an exam result or what someone said about you on Facebook or whether a boyfriend dumped you, which can, if you're totally self-obsessed, be the end of the world. Mm. But, of course, nature just can't help but prize you away from that and remind you that, on one level, we're completely insignificant, but the great paradox is in that insignificance, you learn how wonderfully special and precious you are. Mm, and that's one yeah. of the great paradoxes of, of Zen and, and Taoism is it's the, there's always the duality that we are insignificant, but actually that makes us incredibly unique mm. because we are all individuals and we're all connected to that awe-inspiring infinite universe. Mm, mm-hmm. So that's that anchoring which... Again, the land is just such a wonderful thing that allows you to recenter, and putting your your hands in the dirt is is just one of the great things mm-hmm. to be able to do. Yeah, it, it reminds me of. Uh, so I haven't actually read the One Straw Revolution, mm. but Masanobu Fukuoka, how he talks about working without machinery. Mm. It's not for the land; it's for you to yeah. you, to 
to help you be a, a whole person. Um, but, you know, coming back to the book and yeah. coming back to uh, land management and especially animal management, yeah. I, I wanted to focus on that a little bit. I watched another documentary not too long ago about the uh, basically the ecological change when when the Europeans came to the Americas mm. and brought the big five animals, you yes. know, um, pigs, cows, sheep, uh, goats, and horses, and and how that actually changed the landscape. So so there is the whole the way, especially you see it the pictures of in America of the the feedlots mm. and how. Uh, degrading that it is but animals can also be beneficial if you use them in the in the right way i'd like to talk a little bit about that How, what is your experience with you your the horses on your land and how did you manage them and how could we actually use them or work with them yeah. to create uh, more of a biodiversity yeah absolutely the um obviously having the horses on our farm uh, beginning to put the perennials in place and learning about crop rotation, uh, sorry, rotational grazing. Mm. Um, and that and that's what we really talk about in the book is that, as you're saying, graziers can be used effectively. If you look at the steppes of Mongolia or the, the Serengeti, that they're grazing animals. And what I love about sustainable agriculture is it's mimicking nature. So the best sustainable agriculture systems are based on the fact you had these migratory animals and they would clump together in herds, safety in numbers, mm. and they would follow the, the good grass, leaving behind as a thank you note their deposits of dung mm. and the dung beetles would follow, would break it down, return that to the soil and assuming that the weather patterns stayed the same, they would loosely follow migratory patterns that would take them back to that same grazing area within, depending on the where it was in the seasons, 6 to 12, 18 months later. Mm. So we can use that as the principle for grazing animals on our land, knowing the sweet spot for pasture. Mm. So in other words, pasture, if it gets too low, eaten too low, then you destroy its photosynthetic potential because you're taking away the blades of the grass, so it takes a long time to recover. If it gets too long, then it loses all of its sugars and therefore it's not palatable. I remember as a boy watching horses in what I thought was good pasture. It was up to their their fetlocks or their knees and they'd be looking forlornly over the fence and I, not knowing anything, would say, you stupid bloody horse, you know, you look at all that grass. But they're herbivores. I'm an omnivore slash whatever and they know a lot more about what is palatable grass than I do. So mm. the grass had got too long, too rank, didn't have the sugars. So rotational grazing is about keeping it in that sweet spot, removing the animals before they damage the land. And in the book I try and give people some basic but really profound um, key management principles. And for pasture it is look after the best interests of the pasture so it can look after your animals, mm, okay. which is completely turning on its head what we grew up with on our farm, which was you always put the horses in the paddock. It's cruel to leave them in a yard. Well, what ended up happening is you just destroy the paddock because you were never giving the pasture a chance to rest. Mm. And if you don't do that, you will turn it into a dust bowl. So we turned it on our heads and said, okay, I'm going to very carefully manage the grazing impact. So I would remove the horses um, before they started to damage the pasture. Then I would let the pasture regrow. I would spread the manure or pick it up or worship the dung beetle so that they mm -hmm. could break it down, return all of that good stuff to the soil. And it works. Mm. It's intensive, but... I could justify it because we had a short, small amount of land. Relatively, those horses are incredibly expensive and they're difficult and expensive to feed by hand. So therefore, any good pasture meant the horses were more balanced because they're hardwired to want to graze. That's another thing as well. Those poor animals in feedlots, their brain is hardwired to be head down, bum up for up to 14, 16 hours a day. Mm -hmm. So if they can't graze, what are they doing? And... How is that then translating into the quality of the food? I mean, there are so many reasons why feedlot food is just so bad for us and the planet. Mm. So the other thing about it heals the land because you're letting that land have a rest and the right, manure yeah. is getting enough time to break down. 
You might do some mechanical intervention with slashing and mowing, so you keep it all to an even height. And I often say even height is even grazing palatability. So if you have some grass that's low and some that's high, then you are then in a sense saying, well, let's let the animals graze some areas more Mm. intensively than others. And you don't want that because that's when you really degrade the land and you break the paddocks up according to the soil types. So that's another really important uh, gem of wisdom in the book, I think, is that you learn to read the landscape. Mm. So if you have a sloping paddock, it's completely different from the top of that paddock to the bottom. The top of the paddock is going to dry out first when the rain's finished. The bottom of the paddock is going to be wet and waterlogged in your wet season, but it's going to be a food larder in the drier season because that moisture will actually translate into good pasture growth. So if you understand that, break your paddocks up according to the soil types. You can move your animals through in tight, dense mobs and mimic, as I said before, mm. what would have happened on the steppes yeah. of Mongolia and the Serengeti for hundreds of thousands of mm. years. Okay, yeah. And and you mentioned uh, at the beginning about goats. Mm-hmm. Is goats just not a good idea here in Western Australia? I don't think there's a role for goats in WA. Um, you'd have... Well, look, if you wanted to have goats, you would just have to accept that um, you have to have really good, deep-rooted pasture, lots of fodder shrubs, low grazing stocking rates, and you rotate them through very quickly. Mm. So it can be done, but it's just more intensive and you're going to get less animals per hectare. Mm. I just It breaks my heart when I see people get goats and they just let them go wild in their bush. That's the best way to destroy that land. That's like letting a delinquent loose in the Sistine Chapel with a spray can, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> because all the, the beauty and the diversity in our bushland is from two metres down. That's where the great diversity right, is. Right, okay. So we might call it a Jarra forest. That's a common forest here in WA, but technically all of the biodiversity is is in the shrub and the ground layer, and that's the Mm. first to be trampled and destroyed by those cloven hoof animals Mm. as you let them in. So it's very easy for them to do massive amounts of damage. So when when we talk about, uh, say, in specific Jarrah forests, the the Jarrah trees, they're creating the... The, the canvas for that biodiversity yeah. specific to those yeah. to that forest. Absolutely. And it would be, I mean, we have some of the most biodiverse forests on the planet. And I remember going through the beech forests of England and their, their understory was very, very, um, it was beautiful, but it was not very diverse compared to what we have here. And a lot of that seems to be to the quality of the soil. It's so poor that nature just diversifies it's kind of like the las vegas of flowering you just have Mm. all these different Mm -hmm. colors so it in that very short window of productivity you can get pollination because you're different from another flower and therefore you can get the work done in that very short period of productivity Mm -hmm. yeah okay also before we finish up i want to um talk a little bit about you talk you know this is sort of specifically for quote-unquote hobby farmers, mm. even though they may make yeah. their full-time living yes. off there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you do talk a little bit about uh, crops and how to make your land profitable. Mm. What are some of the ways that, uh, that you that you share? Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of tree crops, as I've mentioned before, um, and I think there's absolutely no reason why you can't have a commercial productive farm on 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 acres. No reason why you can't. Mm. Um, It just comes down to good design. So you integrate a lot of different things. You won't have a monoculture. You might have some bees. You might have some cut foliage. You might do truffles. You might have cork oaks. You might have timber trees. You might have good pasture. So you do some rotational grazing, have some animals that you harvest. You might have marin in ponds or barramundi or, or black brim. So suddenly you can see there are lots of different things that all integrate together. Mm. And you may not necessarily make all of that as direct um, export, which gives you dollars. You might just reduce your income, sorry, your inputs or the amount you have to spend because you're producing a lot of your production Mm. on the farm itself. So um, I'm a, and I talk about it in the book, I'm a big fan of tree crops and I really think that... uh, The world needs more forests, desperately needs more forests, but it always falls back, as I said right at the beginning, the right plants in the right place for the right reasons. So 
Some areas you might go with locally endemic species to try and bring back the biodiversity, but in other areas you might, as I said, have timber woodlots or completely introduce trees, but they have a commercial value for something. Mm. And the more that you can do that as part of a cooperative is really important. So, again, I talk about doing your homework because uh, it's one thing to hear some glossy information about this amazing plant. You know, there are snake oil salesmen in anything, including farm productivity. So you will hear people tell you that, you know, you put in this particular plant and you're going to make your fortune. You probably won't. What your best thing to do is to maybe say that plant is of interest, but go to the independent um, ag research corporations in Australia at CSIRO and Rurdick Rural Industries Research Development Corporation and just get some independent advice about what are the strengths and weaknesses and pitfalls of bee production or growing cut flowers or something. So you know exactly what you're up for. Same messages again. Don't just read a little bit of hype about a particular plant and say, yep, I'm going to do that. Find out a little bit more and see how you can integrate it in to mm-hmm. make sure it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so the a land of plenty. Yes. So I like I like the yeah, idea that- of... of- or land of plenty. Can you do you want? Can you tell us a little bit more? Is that's about the enterprising? Like yeah, that, that's it? right. And and um, being able to say, look, there are lots of different ways you can make um, production. And the photo in the book is of a beautiful, captivating lavender farm in Tasmania. And it's really about saying there's no limit to what you can do. I guess what I try and say is that, you know, in Australia we've been gifted with some of the most incredible plants on the planet. Mm. And many of them now, we're beginning to see that they have medicinal values. So honey, manuka or medicinal honey, it's just untapped. Bush tuckers, there's Mm. incredible opportunities to be looking at getting the next generation of crops on our landscape. So we've we've grown up with a diet of wheat and wool and and, um, oats and all of those annual grains, okay, and they've served us really, really well. Well, what's, what's... What's the next valuable plant for the 21st century? And we're going to shift more towards perennial, as I've mentioned before, Mm. and locally endemic species because Mm. every nation has been gifted with those plants. Mm. But we largely just consign them to the bulldozer. You know, we just clear the land in our quest to just mimic old system. I remember once this amazing guy who worked in Israel desert agriculture research and he said Israel was spending 85% of its um, research and development money trying to squeeze the last out of the old crops that they've been growing for a long time Mm. that really they should have let go. Other third world countries were growing them cheaper and therefore it just wasn't cost competitive for them to do it. They should have been putting their efforts into what are the next generation of crops. Mm. They they Mm. are there. We just need to focus. But it's humanity. We're still spending so much money trying to get the last oil and gas, whereas we should be going, you know, that's gone. That's it's petering out. Let's embrace and put all of our energy into mm. renewables, etc. So it's the same with farming. So in the book, I'm trying to give a bit of a window into what are going to be the next big thing. But again, tempering the hype with get the really good information. Right. Yeah. So so um, there is there's there's lots of good information in this book. Uh, what I was just looking at then was the the uh, appendices of. Mm. of Getting the right tools, having what tools you need for land, um, getting the right contractors, and getting some consultation from someone like you. Mm. So you do consultation. I do, and um, I love doing it. So people can get in contact, and that can be so powerful to just yeah. get a little bit of information to get you started. A lot of people have ideas swimming around in their head, but they're not necessarily comfortable adapting it to that piece of land and reading that landscape. Is, is, I guess, a gift that you hone with time. Um, I love that. It, it's um, just that ability to be able to see everything that's going on in that landscape. And there are thousands of clues on any piece of land, but unless mm. you're attuned to reading it, you'll, you won't pick them up. Mm. So the other thing that works against our poor old hobby farmers or people new to the land is they don't often have the right equipment. They don't have the necessary skills and they may not have the connections locally. So any good farmer will tell you, you have to put your crop in at the right time. He's not going to go, oh, wait two or three weeks. He'll mm. do it when it's the right time. Yeah. And you need to do the same 
So if you don't have the right machinery or the contacts, then you, you often don't get it done at the right time, so it doesn't work properly, and that's, again, one of the reasons why people give up. So um, that's why I felt it was really important to say these are tools that you're going to need. Every piece of land is going to grow some plants that you don't want mm. and you need to be able to manage them. If you're not going to have animals, you do mechanical grazing using a slasher or a mower or a scythe. One of my good friends was talking about a scythe and how... Um, and a sickle, and how they've done studies and they're quicker than a brush cutter. Really? If it's sharp and if it's yeah. done properly. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't care what you use. The point is some mechanical management on a landscape is really, really important mm. because if you're not having animals, plants will grow, weeds will grow, and you need to manage them because, you know, a landscape that's been adulterated or, or changed by humans still needs that ongoing management. Mm-hmm. And there is very few landscapes that you can just set and forget, mm. you know. It's been said of Australia, a powerful and quite evocative statement by Bill Gamage, who wrote this amazing book, um, The Biggest Estate on Earth. And he says there was no wilderness in Australia before 1788. So that's when Australia was colonised. And it's a very confrontational statement, particularly environmentalists will go, you know, we have the wilderness society, etc. But what he's saying is every single piece of this land was managed by the Indigenous people. Mm. They mm. didn't leave pieces of land. Yeah. They they were constantly managing it. And we tend to think of management is slashing and mowing and spraying, etc. but it can be more subtle. It can be the movement of animals through. But because we've degraded landscapes, we do have to intervene because weeds can take over. You know, mm. There weren't weeds in 1788 or prior to that. Mm. So the job was perhaps a little easier, but it just still means we have to manage landscapes. Yeah, yeah. And, and I like that idea of, you know, let's work with nature, mm. let her lead, mm. but let's sort of like sort of put a little bit of guide on there, you know, rather than enforcing, implementing our own um, humanistic style management over the, yeah. on the land. It's the hubris of humanity, you know, and um, that's why falling in love with a piece of land is wonderful because you're you're forced to follow nature's cycles. Mm. You know, we living in an urban setting, we see backyard blitz shows and it gives you the illusion that you can just change a landscape anytime very quickly and you might get away with it in an urban urban setting, but you won't on a farm. Mm. You have to work with the natural cycles and... So by default, you start to work in tune with those systems. And again, there are lots of clues. You'll learn that weeds are far better controlled when they're first coming up rather than when they're big and bold and perhaps purple on the landscape like Patterson's Curse. Mm. So you learn a little bit of Taoism, which there is, you know, don't always think that you have to race around madly doing things. You actually sometimes need to think and watch and make your work targeted and you do the right thing at the right time which is probably when the weeds are first coming up where you won't know about them unless you're reading the landscape Mm. where you're keeping an eye on what's happening and i say to people have a land care calendar on the fridge because at any week or month of the year there is something that you should do at that time Mm. it's the best time whether it's buying seedlings or hitting that weed or making sure that the contractor can come on because the soil's dried out and they can dig the dam or put the fence posts in. But until you have those reminders, you can often miss the Mm. opportunity. Mm. So, again, that's an important part of the book is to just help you put the right action in at the right time, which is all timing. Mm. Great. Well, Chris, um, you know, it is easily... um, taken this hour up just yeah, uh, yeah. just chatting about long, this uh, like I said uh, I love what you're doing uh, I want to support you with your book um, thank you so much for be- coming again onto the probiotic it's... life and uh, is there anything that you want to want to leave us with for this final um, final time uh, re- really just um, that you know having a piece of land is one of the great privileges and one of the things that I would passionately advocate people get. It doesn't matter what the size is. And once you have that piece of land, the soil, and I know that's your raison d'etre, it's uh, healthy soil equals healthy plants equals healthy landscapes, which equals healthy people. Mm. So Mm -hmm. um, my book is is a little attempt to try and help cement that back into our culture. 
Mm. Great. Well, thank you very much, Chris. My pleasure, buddy. Good on you. Cheers. You can tell that Chris is passionate and dedicated to what he's doing and we want to support him so we've teamed up with his publisher, Fremantle Press, to give away a copy of the book. So if you're keen, here's how to enter. Jump onto Instagram and look for the giveaway post on The Probiotic Life. Tag a friend who you want to share this episode with. You've got to follow Fremantle Press, that's at Fremantle Press and follow The Probiotic Life if you haven't already and best of luck. And thank you to those of you who are supporting the podcast in some way or form. Thanks for sticking with us as we get set up and running in our new location. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.